0: Good afternoon. Uh, my name is John Walters. I'm uh, Chief Operating Officer here at Hudson. I'm here to welcome you for today's uh, luncheon program. Um, we are delighted that this is our, I think our first collaboration with um, the uh, Rabin Chair Forum at George uh, Washington University, and uh, um, we couldn't have a better uh, topic and better speakers um, Our title is The Consequences of the Emerging American Iranian Nuclear Deal, a topic that has evolved over uh, the past weeks and will continue to. And uh, this should give us an opportunity to hear um, some of the views of people who have been working on this for some time and uh, insights that I hope will be a benefit to those of you here and those of you who are following us on the um, uh, uh, the stream from uh, um, uh, cameras at the back. Co-host in this is um, Professor Walter Reich, who I'll introduce, and he'll introduce our our speakers. Uh, he is uh, Yitzhak Rabin Memorial Professor in International Affairs, Ethics, and Human yeah. Behavior, and Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at George Washington University. I had to read that because it's pretty complex, and uh, and he's a he's a he's a he's a also a friend. Uh, so it's uh, particularly delightful for me to have him here and to be our partner in this event. He's a senior scholar at the Woodrow Wilson Center for Scholars and former director of the United States Holocaust Museum. Dr. Reich is also a lecturer in psychiatry at Yale University, professor of psychiatry at the Uniform Services University of, of Health Sciences, and a contributing editor of the Wilson Quarterly. He has written and lectured widely on the Holocaust and genocide, terrorism, human rights, national memory, and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. He's written on psychiatry, medical ethics, National and international affairs. I can tell you from my personal experience uh, collaborating with uh, the education of uh, young undergraduates, he's also an outstanding teacher and, uh, as I said, a good, good friend. It's my pleasure to introduce Professor Walter Wright.
1: Well, um, thank you, John. Uh, I just. for those of you who are um, at, the, uh, uh, at the Hudson Institute, and for those of you who are visitors, uh, I want you to know that um, the person who is the COO here is uh, one of the most decent people in Washington. <laughs> uh, I know it's not a huge audience, a huge population, but it's uh, certainly he's a member of that um, population. <coughs> Um, I don't have to talk about the importance of this topic. Uh, The speakers will. Um, And uh, it's at a critical point uh, because uh, the so-called framework agreement has been announced. Uh, The two sides have uh, identified them, characterized them quite differently. We're all waiting to see what the outcome will be. Everybody knows that certain parties want the outcome to occur. And um, Professor Inbar is going to talk about that. Um, And Lee Smith will participate in the program as well. He's going to um, make, he's basically going to be a commentator for um, the the talk that uh, Professor Inbar will give. I want to thank, by the way, uh, Ken Weinstein, um, who uh, is the head of the Hudson Institute and who, um, uh, with whom I hope we continue to uh, join forces and have ongoing joint programs. Um, Professor Inbar. Uh, is a professor of political studies at Bar-Ilan University in Israel and director of its renowned Begin Sadat Center for Strategic Studies, also known by its acronym as the BESA Center. He was educated at the Hebrew University uh, with a BA in political science and English literature and at the University of Chicago, where he got an MA and a PhD in political science. He served as visiting professor at Hopkins, Georgetown visiting scholar uh, or fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center. Uh, And um, he's been at a bunch of universities uh, of lesser renown: Harvard, MIT, Columbia, Oxford, Yale. Uh, Why'd you leave out uh, those others? Uh, His area of specialization is Middle East strategy, Middle Eastern strategic issues with a special interest in the politics and strategy of Israeli national security. He's written lots of books, edited lots of um, volumes, written lots of articles. Probably many of you have seen some of them. Uh, His Latest book that I know of is Israel's National Security Issues and Challenges since the Yom Kippur War. Uh, He also wrote the Israeli Turkish Entente. Uh, And he wrote about a book about uh, Rabin's Israel national security policy. Um, uh, This is the Bessa Institute's latest publication. Uh, It's one of those rare things, something in hard copy but here it is. Uh, you, it also has a website, and uh, uh, I'm sure um, you will find many more things on it. Uh, Lee Smith is a senior fellow here at the, at the Hudson Institute, uh, in addition to the fact that he happens to be um, an alumnus of George Washington University, where he got a BA, uh, which uh, I was delighted to learn. He has worked at a number of journals, magazines, and publishers, including the Hudson Review, Echo Press, Athenaeum, Grand Street, GQ, Talk Magazine. He's a senior editor of the Weekly Standard, of the, um, uh, he was the editor-in-chief of the uh, voice literary supplement the Village Voices National Monthly Literary Magazine. Um, his book on Arab societies, The Strong Horse, Power, Politics, and the Clash of Arab Civilizations was published in 2010. Um, and here is the part that uh, brings me the greatest envy. Um, he knows Spanish, Arabic, French, and Latin. Um, so it's a pleasure uh, to ask uh, Professor Inbar to come here and, and uh, speak. Uh, the plan for the uh, noon discussion, we have 45 minutes left to it, um, is for Professor Inbar to speak for 10 or 15 minutes, right? 12, 15, maybe 20 minutes. Um, uh, Lee Smith is going to ask him a few questions or engage him in a conversation. Um, I have a bunch of questions. I would love to ask them if there's an opportunity, but the most important thing is that the audience should have a chance to interact uh, with Professor Inbar. Thank you.
2: I hope I have a long enough leash. Uh, Good day, it's my pleasure to be at uh, Hudson again. Uh, and uh, I'm happy that the uh, Rabin Chair uh, is co-chairing this event. Indeed, you need to be a psychiatrist in order to deal with the Middle East. <laughs> and uh, so uh, I'll uh, speak about the consequences of the deal. Uh, of course, I don't know if it's going to be a deal, but uh, probably is there is going to be a deal. And uh, the consequences I'll uh, enumerate uh, are already uh, here. Uh, even without the deal, the formal deal. And uh, the first uh, consequence uh, of uh, what has uh, happened so far in the negotiations between the P5 plus one and Iran is uh, that uh, the U.S. diplomacy uh, confirms once more the perception of uh, U.S. weakness and confusion in uh, the Middle East. Uh, we've seen Libya being destroyed by leadership from behind. Uh, Syria oscillating, red line, no red line. Uh, seen support for the Muslim Brothers and criticism of Assisi. And now, uh, the crowning of the American efforts is a deal with Iran. Uh, and uh, to make it quite clear, the expectations of the region is rollback. This is what people in uh, countries that are allied with the United States wanted. This is what the international community wanted. This is rooted in a a National Security uh, Council uh, resolution. Uh, No enrichment. And uh, from what I know, uh, it is uh, (coughs) 6,000 centrifuges, uh, according to the... uh, Uh, U.S. State Department Secretary Kerry, in a moment of weakness, he admitted that the Iranians are going to be uh, three months from enriching enough uh, fissionable material uh, for, for a bomb. And the second thing which I want to make quite clear, it really doesn't matter what Washington thinks. What it matters is how the people in the region sees the developments. And maybe in Washington, there are people that are very satisfied with what has been happening. I uh, you was know, saying this is the most pragmatic consequence. Uh, but the region, and I'm speaking about Riyadh, about Cairo, about Amman, Rabat, as well as other places in the world, uh, see the deal in two ways. The first result, the first consequence is basically legitimization of Iran uh, with an advanced nuclear status. This is quite clear. It doesn't matter the details of the of the of the deal. This is the deal. The Americans agreed to have Iran uh, almost within you know a nuclear power. And the second Uh, consequence of of the deal what what transpires very clearly that the United States decided to allow Iran to take a more important role in regional affairs. Uh, The U.S. calls it a responsible role. I'm not sure if uh, in Farsi, in Persian responsible means what in English it means but that's a different thing. Uh, It changes the regional balance of power. Actually, it catapults Iran, uh, historic, regional uh, power back into the high politics of the region after it was isolated for many years. And uh, this is a clear consequence that everybody adjusts already to a third consequence. And we've seen it already. It's intensification of proliferation efforts Um, and the American effort to try to convince the Gulf countries or any other regional country that they can rely on American deterrence, what's called extended deterrence in the professional jargon, is not going to work. They don't rely on America. Americans are nice. I like Americans. But not everybody believes that this administration in particular is reliable. And therefore, they are not going to accept an American nuclear umbrella. By the way, the French also didn't accept a French nuclear umbrella. And they developed their own bombinet in the 60s. There is no reason to think that in Riyadh, in Cairo, in Ankara, here there is some reservation, will rely on American nuclear umbrella. Therefore, they'll continue and intensify their efforts to be on par with Iran. And the Saudis said already, we want the same. The Egyptians will say also, we want the same. And eventually the Turks will do everything to be on the same level. And indeed, those are the three main regional powers that will try uh, to get a bomb because they cannot live with an Iran, with a Persia that has a bomb. A fourth consequence. Uh, Israel fears a nuclear Middle East, multipolar nuclear Middle East. We do not believe that stable deterrence can be achieved for a variety of reasons. It's a different lecture. The distances, the political mechanisms in the region, a two-azimuth posture, nuclear posture. Therefore. What the Americans are doing with Iran are pushing Israel into thinking even more seriously about preemption. And uh, if we do not want a nuclear multipolar Middle East, Israel has to prevent it. So it's not an easy decision, particularly when it's the White House sits the guy that signed on this agreement. And uh, Israel, after all, uh, needs the United States for a variety of reasons, and it's not going to be an easy decision. I'm not sure it will be taken, although I personally think this is what should be done. Now, without Israeli preemption... We'll see nuclear proliferation in the Middle East. Which means several more things. First of all, a more aggressive Iran. A powerful Iran. Uh, We should not forget that Iran has a rich history, which is partly imperial. And the current administration, the smiling guys, are speaking about an important regional and global role for Iran. And we shouldn't forget what they are doing, supporting terrorism. Um, and as a result of a more powerful Iran, particularly after the sanctions will completely be eroded or removed. It doesn't matter, really. They'll have more money in order to produce mischief in the Middle East. And they are very good at that. We definitely can see a process of Finlandization of the Gulf states. Some of them are already bandwagoning, moving toward Iran particularly those countries that have significant Shiite population, like, Kuwait, a third, Bahrain, almost everything. I think that the Iranians have a powerful incentive to try to destabilize Saudi Arabia. It's not that difficult. The eastern province, where most of the oil is, is mostly Shiite as they can use the Shiite feelings in order to cause trouble. By the way, if they try and are successful in destabilizing Egypt, they are also successful in, if they are successful in destabilizing Saudi Arabia, they are also successful in destabilizing Egypt. Egypt needs money from the Gulf. The foreign policy of Egypt for years has been to make sure they have enough money to provide food to their people. And the is doing uh, not bad in in the area of economics, but still, we are talking about uh, 90 million people with tremendous economic problems. And there are billions of dollars that are being transferred to Egypt every year in order to keep Egypt afloat. If the Gulf states go, if Saudi Arabia goes, Egypt goes as well, or are busy with much more domestic issues. Egypt and Saudi Arabia are two nuclear proliferators, potential proliferators and competitors in the region. And finally, you know, no, not finally. I, I still have a few minutes. <laughs> um, they will get what, they, what is their stated goal. The eviction of the United States from the Gulf. This is their goal. They are saying it. They are not bashful about it. We have to take them seriously. If they are successful in Finlandizing the Gulf states, if they are successful in weakening tremendously Saudi Arabia, you are next. Some of the people in America like the idea. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, It's a good idea for the United States to leave the Gulf. But it will have serious geopolitical repercussions over the control of energy in the world. That's an important issue. And Iran will uh, benefit from it, obviously. Uh, I can definitely see if there will be nuclear proliferation, uh, a revival of the Turkish-Persian rivalry, which was for many years on a very low heat. Partly because Turkey is uh, within NATO, uh, partly because uh, Turkey is following now Islamic policies, which are convenient to, to Iran, partly because Turkey is dependent upon Iran, Iranian gas energy. Those two are historic regional powers in the Middle East, and nowadays they display revisionist tendencies unquestionably. They have big appetite. Erdogan and the Mullahs have a lot of appetite. They are not status quo powers. And uh, the final point which I want to make concerns my, my, my own country. Uh, Israel will be increasingly isolated in the region. Um, We've never been quite popular in the region. Let's face it. Uh, But we are successful in producing ad hoc pragmatic alliances. This will be more difficult. Uh, Yet, at the same time, because what will be happening in the region, Israel will be more important to the United States and the West as being probably the only stable country that an American plane, if they want to land somewhere in the Middle East, will be able to land. Interleek is not open freely to American airplanes. A NATO country, a NATO ally. Uh, Egypt is being pushed by the Americans into Russian hands. Saudis, who knows who will be the Saudis if the Iranians. Uh, are able to get their goals. Therefore, uh, Israel will be more important strategically. Uh, I'm not sure that this is a big consolation for us. Thank you.
3: Well, that was perfect. Thanks very much. And um, So I, I wanted to ask a, a few follow-up questions, and then we'll, we'll open it up to some other people in the audience. I guess one of the The first things I wanted to ask is what you ended on, the issue that how this will complicate things for Israel. I mean, I guess insofar as the administration is looking to, or this is what it seems to be the case, uh, minimize its profile in the Middle East, potentially this could have been a, a good thing for Israel, right? Insofar as the United States comes out a little bit and says, now we're going to empower our big ally, frequently referred to as... Uh, an American aircraft carrier in the Middle East. But this is not what's happened. The administration instead has seemed to attack, uh, or has not seemed, has attacked, the Netanyahu government. Why do you think this is happening? Why do you think instead of the U.S. trying to empower uh, a long-time Middle East ally and a very powerful and useful Middle East ally, as you say, our most reliable ally, why has the administration... <coughs> Tried to weaken rather than strengthen this ally. Um,
2: I I quote uh, Shlomo Avineri, you know, a famous professor at, at Hebrew University, that I was his student. He told me that uh, President Obama has a career as a community worker, not foreign policy. And uh, when you deal with the community issue, uh, you try uh, to identify the bullies and uh, to try to uh, co-opt them. (laughs) And uh, he suggested that this is the type of thinking that Obama has brought to the Middle East. And from the very beginning, uh, this administration tried to engage Iran, engage Syria, both enemies. Uh, So maybe this uh, sounds good, you know, for a liberal community worker. But in the Middle East, you do not engage your enemies. You try to weaken them, kill them if necessary, uh, but do not engage. So, you know, it looks, and we all know, that sometimes being a foe of the administration... You get a better treatment than being a friend. This is a complaint from, not only from Israel. Um, I heard it in Poland. I heard it in Korea. Uh, so um, I can understand maybe a strategic decision, looking at the Arab world and seeing that the state structure is being destroyed. And you need, America needs a policeman in the region. And uh, there are uh, only, uh, you know, uh, few candidates that can do the job. Of course, Israel is not one of them because of the differences, uh, cultural differences between us and the
3: region. Do you you think they're looking to Iran to do that? I see. They say it. They say it. I hear it. Uh, Certainly, right. I mean, the the thought process, we can certainly... Certainly, see them working it out, as you say. Israel is not capable of, or Israel is capable of, uh, of doing that s- a certain amount of work in the Eastern Mediterranean, but not throughout the Persian Gulf, as as you're saying. Um, what about one of the things that we hear frequently is that uh, there's not, of course, an open alliance between Israel and the GCC states, Saudi Arabia and the Persian Gulf, uh, the Arab, the Arab sheikdoms. What, I mean, do you think that this is that they are moving closer because of Iran? Do you th- see anything larger coming of this eventually? Or do you think that this is just a, a consequence of, uh, of the Iranian problem?
2: What's this? What's
3: well, the, the, the relationship between Israel and the GCC states. Do you think this will develop into something larger? Because you were saying before that Israel will become more and more isolated. Is it possible that you know, there will be a, an actual uh, alliance? With
2: the, uh, with the Gulf states? I don't think the Saudi Arabia and the Arab states uh, will come out uh, of the closet. They have too many domestic problems and they don't want to burden themselves with uh, better relations with the Jewish state, particularly if they are facing uh, uh, radicals. Uh, but business is business. And as long as uh, we can do things together which are useful to both sides, mm. this will happen. Uh, but I think uh, it might happen less and less if they are intimidated by the Iranians. What, what do you think is happening now? I mean, what
3: is the, what's your sense? Again, we get some sort of idea of the, of different things that are alleged to be happening, but what's your sense of what's going on? If I you, think you can talk about uh, it's it.
2: a very fluid situation now. The region, you know, the state that survived the Arab Spring are at, uh, particularly in the Gulf and Saudi Arabia, are at crossroads, try to think what are their best choices. Obviously they rejected the American nuclear umbrella. Uh, We'll see an arm race. Iranians will try to buy more weapons in order to try to defend themselves from the Iranians. But the Iranians will not necessarily uh, go via conventional armies. They can do it subversion, mm. which would be more difficult for them. And uh, the quality of uh, the uh, Sunni bloc is, uh, is not very good. Let's mm. face it. Uh, Several years already, Turkey, a Sunni power, Saudi Arabia, a Sunni power, tried together to put an end to the regime of Assad. And they are not successful. I don't hear about great Saudi successes in Yemen. So there is a limit to what we can expect of uh, these powers. And uh, Iran is a very sophisticated actor.
3: I, I, I certainly think you're right. I mean, I think in what we've seen over the last half century and more is that the Sunni powers can project power because of the United States. If the United States is not there, and as we're seeing more clearly now, it's extremely
2: difficult for them to project power. The only uh, Sunni power that is able to project you know, uh, a <clears throat> distance is, uh, is Egypt. But the tensions between America and Egypt are, uh, are known, right. are taken, being taken advantage by the Russians. And... Uh, it, it's uh, also uh, Egypt without uh, Saudi money will be in big trouble.
3: If I can ask you something, um, I, I just want to stick on the stick on Israel again for for a couple more minutes here. Um, one of the things that we've been seeing in the news a lot lately, uh, we've been seeing different reports, both in the American press and of course the Israeli press, talking about Hezbollah. I mean, there have also there have effectively been warnings. Um, there have effectively been warnings coming from official Israel that Hezbollah has lots of missiles and rockets in civilian areas throughout all of Lebanon, in fact. And Israeli officials are saying, if this war goes hot, it's going to be a big problem for all of Lebanon. And I guess, you know, when we talk about the Iranians, we're not just talking about Iran. We're not just talking about Tehran. We're talking about their different assets throughout the region. So I guess if you can give us some sense of what people are saying about Hezbollah right now in Israel, what's their concern? We know that Hezbollah is uh, heavily committed in Syria, but of course, again, their raison d'être is, is is allegedly Israel. So, what are Israel, what are official uh, Israelis thinking about this?
2: We don't like Hezbollah. <laughs> yeah, All right, that's that, That's a good place to start. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we've heard uh, the leader last week, you know, giving a speech uh, in hiding, still in hiding. And uh, uh, he speaks uh, quite clearly about the Hezbollah priorities. The first priority is to keep Assad in power because he is a linchpin to Iran for them. And, you know. um, Israel is relegated to... a uh, to you know the, the small Satan, you know if we use uh, uh, regional vernacular, and uh, so um, uh, if they start a war, they'll start maybe they may start a war if we attack I- Iran, and uh, they uh, probably can uh, exact uh, a cost uh, of a few hundred Israelis. Uh, we have, uh, of course, the Iron Dome that can protect not the population, it can protect the, the strategic uh, installations, uh, uh, the, the airfields, uh, the power stations, the ports. This is what we have the, the Iron Dome for. Uh, we don't have enough batteries. Uh, we try to get more, uh, but it's... it's uh, yes, yeah, they'll do damage. and. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there any sense that something
3: might happen, that Israel might act preemptively against Hezbollah, or that Hezbollah might act preemptively against Israel? What's your... Again, I'm just I'm, I'm just uh, noting the amount of the amount of news coming out of this, and it's surprising because if, if we see that Hezbollah is so committed in Syria, why do we keep hearing news
2: reports uh, about this as well? Uh, they try uh, to establish uh, an additional front on the Golan Heights with Iranian help. Uh, and we try to prevent it by force. Uh, uh, I will not be surprised to we'll see even Turkish proxies on the Golan Heights. Uh, Erdogan made a speech uh, a week right? and a half ago about uh, c- calling the Muslims uh, to go uh, Jerusalem, not as tourists, of course. And... Uh, um, Uh, you see, we we should not lose the focus. Our main problem is Iran. If in order to do Iran well we have to clean southern Lebanon before that, let's do it. But uh, we should not be distracted by Hezbollah from the main target which is Iran. So uh, I think... uh, The developments in Syria help us deal with this issue, uh, you know, uh, just uh, mowing the grass, as Israelis... uh, How how is that?
3: How does Syria help with uh, mowing the issue? The Syrians are...
2: You know, Hezbollah is busy in Syria. Uh, They take a lot of losses. Uh, And uh, they... um, even part of the military equipment probably has to go first to the Syrians rather than to go to, to Hezbollah. Um, so, we, To some extent, the, the Syrian war uh, paralyzes to some extent you know, the, the offensive capabilities of, of Hezbollah.
3: You, um, before, when you were speaking, you seemed to be of two minds as to whether or not Uh, Israel might be capable of attacking Iranian nuclear facilities or willing to do it. What's your?
2: If you can elaborate a bit on that, give me your sense of... I think we are able to do it. There's no question about our ability to do it. Uh, I know there are plans. It's not a secret. There are plans. We invested money in uh, creating the capabilities to do it. Uh, The issue is not capabilities, the issue is political will. And uh, um, Netanyahu, more than any other political figure in Israel, uh, is uh, very much adamant on this issue. Uh, This doesn't mean that he orders uh, the IDF to go into Iran tomorrow morning. Uh, Netanyahu has a historic perspective uh, that makes him ready to give such an order, from what I know of him, N- not personally from people around. Mm-hmm. Him. Um, so uh, we have the capability. If I, if the I timing about- is also an issue, right? If I, if I can ask about the
3: political will, because one of the things that we understood was during the elections <coughs> that you know it was it was not just Netanyahu who was who saw Iran as the major strategic threat, but that this is a there's a very, very wide consensus about this in Israel, including, uh, you know, including the domestic opponents of uh, of, of, of the prime minister. Yeah. So, what wh- what is what's the problem with the political will? Where is there? Uh, you, do know, you just uh, mean the there individual? There is a president
2: in Washington that uh, doesn't like the idea that Israel should hit Iran. That's a political problem. Right. And uh, in Israel, by the way, you know, uh, for American audience. There is great consensus on many issues portraying Israel as is divided is simply not true. You know no. We are uh, in favor of attacking Iran. we are in favor of uh, a two solution, two state solutions that uh, i don 't think will happen uh, anytime soon um, and uh, we are uh, uh, in great agreement about you know being a capitalist economy which is doing extremely well, no. so Israel has great consensus and uh, still somebody has to give the order and uh, take into consideration the tensions between Israel and the United States at this time. And it's a complex relationship. Right. It's not, uh, you know, uh, only black or, you know, uh, let's,
3: you know. Well, wh- um, well, let me ask. I mean, if, if, we're talking about, if we're talking about the United States minimizing its role in the region, isn't there a way in which the prime minister of Israel can say, the Americans are leaving, the Americans are gone, we don't care what you say? Because you're not here. What, what are we supposed to do? You're going to give orders to us from thousands of miles away? Everyone in the region on our side agrees with this. Why can't, in a certain sense, they overrun? Or isn't there a sense that what the Americans say now is irrelevant? <laughs>
2: Well, it's easy to say it in Washington, but... Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I'm just starting uh, No, but <laughs> the, the issue is, is simple. You know, we are a small country, a small ally of the United States. Uh, we fly American airplanes. We shoot uh, American missiles. Uh, we are... Uh, um, we need America for uh, a lot of uh, things in the international arena. Uh, just uh, last week on the nuclear proliferation... Uh, Conference uh, America delivered. So, uh, uh, this is an issue that, you know, I'll I'll take a long historic view. Uh, The Jewish people lost twice their state because they were not careful in making the right international considerations. It's not easy to uh, confront a, a superpower. Uh, even if it's a superpower in decline, which I'm not sure it's true, but even if we assume Mm. that the U.S. is in decline and wants to leave the Middle East, I advocate caution. At the same time, I am all in favor Mm. of attacking. Uh, But uh, it's not my decision. I think that Mm. sometimes you have to confront a superpower, but I can definitely understand the, the caution and the reluctance uh, to create, uh, you know, basically is uh, to poke uh, the president of the right. United States in, in its eye. You know, mm-hmm. he makes a, a great agreement. You know, this is his heritage, you know, and, and uh, mm. <laughs> we right. say part- forget about it, you know. Right. We, we do our own stuff. Well, so it's not...
3: Uh, hmm. Well, let me ask you, is one of the consequences, one of the possible consequences <laughs> of the U.S.-Iran deal if the U.S. is withdrawing somewhat? Does Israel look around and look at other powers around the world, say, well, there's China, there's India,
2: uh, there's Russia? I don't think that there is for Israel. I'm not sure for other countries. A real alternative to the United States.
3: Why? Uh,
2: Listen, uh, Russia is a third world power with nuclear weapons. Uh, China is uh, indeed a powerful country, but still not united states far from being the united states india we have excellent relations with the indians but the indians buy from us weapons not uh, they don't sell weapons to us Um, so um, if i take a look at the international uh, scene the only game in town is the united states and uh, and actually i i i'm being a fellow american i'm happy no i know I think that America is uh, the best superpower we can deal with. You know, uh, what's happening? You know, the, the question many Israelis ask, you know, is do we have an historic accident in Washington or is it a trend? Many hope that this is an historic accident in the American political tradition. Mm. So uh, well, well, that, that twenty. we have 20 okay. months. 20 months is a long time. Uh, Countries can do a lot of damage.
3: Right. Maybe 20 months, maybe more. Before I open it up for questions, let me just ask my one last question, which is, uh, how does the United States change its position? Let's say it is just 20 months. It's a historical accident, and the next administration, whether it's Democrat uh, or Republican, will recognize how important it is for the United States to, again, be the power broker and the great power in the Middle East? What has to happen? What does the United States have to do to reassert its, uh, its bona fides in the Middle East?
2: Well, I think eventually the Iranians uh, will be caught cheating. I'm sure they are cheating all the time, but they are not caught. Uh, so um, uh, this will uh, maybe change something in the United States. Um, I think if uh, some of the developments I, I mentioned will become clearer in Washington, there may be you no know, rethinking of, of the American foreign policy towards the Middle East.
3: Will the government of Israel believe it? Will they say, oh, okay, again, the Americans are serious? Not serious, but again, the Americans have this perspective they've had for decades, and now we see that the Obama White House was something of a uh, an anomaly, and so now the Americans, how does the next administration
2: prove? I think uh, business as usual. You know, uh, for example, uh, last summer, we were subjected to an embargo, arms embargo. The Americans didn't send us okay. weapons that they were supposed to. So if this, you know, if uh, the relationship goes back to, to normal, I don't know what that means, but you know, to what it was... Then, uh, you see, uh, we don't need proof that uh, you love us all the time. You know, some people, you know, like to be reinforced, you know, (laughs) she loves me, he loves... No, we are practical, we are fine, you know, we look at what's uh, arriving uh, at the votes. you know, uh, that's uh, that's what counts, you know. Love, it's a different story, there's not love in international (laughs) relations. Thank you,
3: Ephraim. Uh, Walter, would you like to, should we wait for a, do we have a, do we have a, a microphone? We have two, Rayson. Thanks, oh, Walter, or you can stand up, whatever you prefer. What are you Okay, well, I thought you would like to ask a question. Do you have anything that you would like to add?
1: I do have one question. Um, um, There are all kinds of details related to this final agreement, this end of June agreement. Um, Details having to do with numbers of centrifuges uh, at a time when it emerges that there are four or five other means of enrichment, so that perhaps the number of centrifuges actually doesn't count, Um, um, the issue of verification um, and uh, cheating, uh, which uh, lots of people feel, as you do, that um, uh, this is not only inevitable, um, but happening already. Um, so does it make a difference what's in that final agreement? That's a question to you.
2: No, there is no difference. There is not such a thing as a good agreement. Let's face it. Every agreement entails those two things. Legitimization of uh, advanced nuclear status mm. and a, a greater role for Iran in regional affairs. It doesn't matter the details. The details are totally irrelevant. This, those are two political facts that are shining. Interesting. So I, I
1: just, so uh, just want to. So, so is it the case that really there already is a fact? Yeah. Um, that uh, there is an administration in Washington that wants a deal. There is desperate. Admi- a desperate for a deal, lusting for a deal. Uh, I'm trying to find an, a stronger and stronger word. Uh, there is um, uh, a government in Iran that um, wants the deal and also the the ending of sanctions. Um, and um, and whatever happens at the end of June won't make a difference. Are, is that what you're saying?
2: Yeah. Since uh, November uh, 2013, you know, the agreement at Geneva, it's clear. That's it. The American policy is set and uh, we have to face the consequence. That's it. I think there is uh, you know, uh, arguing about details is, is is not so important. Maybe the American administration wants to be able to reduce the criticism in Congress or things like that. They say, I did that. But basically, there are two clear facts. I repeat, Iran becomes almost a nuclear power. Second, uh, Iran receives a kosher certificate from Washington to act in the Middle East. That's it, and freedom of action. This is it, and uh, this is clear. And the details of the agreement, if there will be one, you know, not, they are not relevant. We are on this course already a year and a half.
1: So we have time for a few questions. Yeah, because uh,
3: we, uh, uh, the gentleman over here, Dan, you could come down here. Dan, and if you could identify yourself.
1: Dan Pollack with the Zionist Organization of America. I wanted to go back to the question of conflict between Israel I'm, I'm
3: sorry, just to make it clear, I, I am going to ask for quick questions. Yes, sir. So, so the quick
1: question is, when it comes to engaging Lebanon and Hezbollah, is there feeling within the analytical community in Israel that you actually have an opportunity to make something happen when Hezbollah is committed elsewhere, thinking that, There may be an inevitability of the crisis with Hezbollah. Doesn't it make sense to make it come when Hezbollah is almost fully committed uh, elsewhere?
2: I don't think we are trigger-happy. Netanyahu uh, particularly has shown great restraint in Israeli use of force. Uh, You always know how a war starts. You don't know how it ends. Uh, Therefore, unless there is a clear... Necessity uh, to invade southern Lebanon and take care of uh, uh, the missiles. Um, I don't think we'll do it, even if uh, Hezbollah is uh, in a weak position. Maury, sorry uh Maury,
3: here, I'm uh,
0: a former executive director of APAC. Uh, I read all your stuff. I think it's. Terrific, I'm glad to see you here. Question about Israel. Thank you. Given the fractious nature of its politics, and even though uh, Bibi might want to preempt, where will Israel, where will its elites, where will its political people be in terms of support for Israeli preemption?
2: Well, I think, first of all, it's Israeli preemption has to be successful. If it will be successful, everybody will uh, say, "Okay, how 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 nice it was and how important it was." If it fails, uh, we are in trouble.
0: If
2: uh, if we do it right, there is no question of, You know, there will be support for it, public support. You know, maybe the international community, in a hypocritic, typical way, will uh, you know uh, say, "You know, how can you do that?" and uh, destroy the chances of uh, peace or things like that. But, uh, you know, uh, we've done it before. The international community was not uh, always immediately happy. But afterwards, the uh, uh, American president thanked us for, uh, for doing the right thing. Uh, I think uh, if we do it right, you know, we are successful. Uh, our contribution to Western security will be recognized. Why
3: don't we get someone on this side? Um, but the, um, the woman in the uh, pink sweater, right in the second row? And if you could identify yourself, please.
0: Uh, Yes, my name is Jan Bates. I'm just a private citizen. Ah, okay. Um, And I wanted to ask um, whether uh, Israel recognizes that perhaps the Congress might save us all from this terrible deal.
2: I think this is uh, the gamble of Netanyahu. Netanyahu uh, went to Congress knowing that he estranges uh, the administration, hoping that uh, Congress will... uh, uh, prevent the deal, but again, uh, even if it will prevent the deal, the two consequences of
0: this
2: (laughs) negotiation so far are already rooted in the region.
3: Um, A signed
2: deal doesn't matter.
3: The woman in the front row right here.
2: Thank you, Mr. Smith. I'm Jolie Friedman Mm -hmm. with Newsmax. It's an honor to be talking with you, Dr. Inbar. Um, I'm wondering what you think um, the United States should be doing, if anything, to help combat rising anti-Semitism that we're seeing in the world, especially in light of the United Nations um, claiming Israel to have the worst human rights in the world. I have an unorthodox uh, view about anti-Semitism. This is not our problem. Anti-Semitism is uh, a problem of uh, uh, the West. You know, I travel in India, in China. We didn't kill their god. Uh, They have uh, no problems with us. (laughs) Um, And, uh, you know, Western civilization has this code, you know, anti-Semitism. It's up. To Western enlightened people to take care that they get rid of this disease. You know, uh, we are only uh, seven million people. Uh, Our ability to change uh, attitudes in the world is very limited. And uh, basically, America is uh, obviously less anti Semitic than than Europe. So, uh, you know, here I wear a yarmulke. In, uh, in Brussels, I can go. In there are parts of Europe that uh, uh, the security g- people at the Israeli embassy tell me take off your kippah, uh, and this shows uh, about uh, you know the type of societies uh, that are emerging now in in Europe, and uh, they have to get rid of it. We cannot. I. Uh, I, don't, uh, I, I do not participate in, you know, in this type of uh, festivals against anti-Semitism. It's not my problem. It's their problem. It's a, a problem of the Gentile world. Let's face it. A specific part of the Gentile world. They, in the East, they are different. And there are many more people in the East. You know, Indians, Chinese. They, are, they don't have this this,
3: I think that's an excellent answer, and I, I, I think that probably I think that probably uh, runs out our time. And I think it's a very I think it's a very impressive way to to end the panel. Actually, I think you're exactly right, and I'm I'm very happy you said that. And it was a pleasure to uh, to be on this panel. Again. Thank, you. Thank, you.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks thanks to all of you. Thank you.